Jacob stayed in the night, and he sent gifts to his brother Esau in five different waves. So he prays to God, but he still is kind of like, yeah, I still got to cover my bases. I'll send a bribe, and then I'll send the other one a little bit behind that, and a little bit behind that, and the next one a little bit behind that. So Esau will get hit with wave of wave after bribe. And instead of getting one big giant one, he'll get five pins, and they'll feel bigger and more wild. And they'll, so I'm going to pray and do what I'm doing. Old habits die hard. You have to give him at least credit for praying and seeking out God. So he does this. Verse 22, During the night Jacob took, quickly took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream along with his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Then a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not defeat Jacob, he struck the socket of his hip. So the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled him. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. I will not let you go, Jacob replied, unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And he answered, Jacob, no longer will your name be Jacob, a man, the man told him, but Israel. Because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. This passage actually creates a lot more questions than what it answers. So Jacob wakes up in the middle of the night and he's wrestling this man. Now we're not told who this guy is until later. Just like with Abraham meeting um, God and the two angels back in chapter 18. Now later we're told that this is God in some way. He thinks it's God, but... The prophet Malachi tells us he wrestled the angel. Now, I wouldn't trust Jacob for theology right now, but I would trust a prophet inspired by God who got his own book. He's wrestling us, but it's mostly being told from his perspective. So from his perspective, it's the middle of the night. He can't see anything. He woke, he's woken up, which means he's disoriented, and this guy is wrestling him. And he's just wrestling if he knew it was God, he probably would have never wrestled to begin with. And so he's wrestling this guy, and he won't let go. And we're told that the angel cannot defeat Jacob. And you're like, what? Nah, there's, that's not right. We know that's totally theologically wrong. So what's going on here? Probably the point that is being made here is that Jacob is so stubborn that he won't cry uncle and stop. Now we know that the angel can easily defeat Jacob because what does the angel do? Yeah, he just touches his hip bone and his hip bone is dislocated for the rest of his life. So there's power there. So that immediately tells you the point is not literally he can't defeat Jacob. The point is on Jacob's stubbornness to not stop wrestling with God. And just like with the Tower of Babel scene, when Jacob was leaving Israel, he saw the vision of the Tower of Babel, which normally humans are sending to the tower trying to get their own blessings, but God's angels are coming down, meaning that God blesses you. Man doesn't get his own blessings. God blesses you. And now the same thing is happening. Jacob's trying to wrestle God for the blessings, and God is trying to tell him, they're already yours. I've already given them to you, and I will keep giving them to you because I am that God. And Jacob's like, but I want them. I'm wrestling you for them. He's like, they're already yours. And so he's trying to wear Jacob out physically, 
as a metaphor for having to wear him out spiritually until he'll finally cry uncle, but Jacob still refuses to give in and submit to God. And finally, what does God have to do with people who refuse to submit and surrender to God? He breaks you. And most of it is spiritually breaking, but in Jacob's sense, it's going to be a physical breaking too. And it says from that day on, he had to walk with a cane, meaning that every limp that he takes, he is humiliated. No longer is he the great Jacob that can deceive himself out of things. He's now the Jacob that is in pain every time he walks, and all the nations will look at him as a weakling, as less than a man. Which means, who does he now have to depend on? God. And that's the point that God is making. But at the same time, it still also shows you that Jacob does want the blessings. Remember, Esau gave it up so quickly for a bowl of soup. So it reminds you that, yes, he's doing the wrong way. Yes, he's deceiving. Yes, he's not trusting in God. But he still wants the things of God. And at least wanting the things of God is closer to a submission to God than not even valuing the things of God at all. And so this wrestling makes two points in that area when it comes to that. And so he pops his hip out, and then this is where, just like Abraham got a name, new name, he gets a new name. And he's renamed Israel. And Israel means God fights for you. Just as Jacob was fighting God, God is saying, I will fight for you. Now, there's a pun here. There's three puns here. Jacob is struggling with God at the Jabuk. Now, in the Hebrew, these three words sound the same. So Jacob is Yaakov. Struggling is the Hebrew word yegavka, and Jacob is the yabak. So basically, it is the yakav is vayakveka at the yakab. So they all sound exactly the same. So the old man Jacob is wrestling with God outside the land, and God is going to rename him. I fight for you. So that when he goes into the new land with a new name, he is to see God in a new way. He's no longer at the Yabek struggling as Jacob. He is Israel trusting in God and the land that God has given him. And this is going to become, obviously, the name of Israel, the nation the people of God, that God says, I will put my name on you. And so this is very important for you to understand because when we get into Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings, you're going to notice something. When you watch the History Channel and you watch movies, battles are always epic. I think I'm, I don't know if I, I can never remember what class I made these points in. It all comes together because it's all God. They're epic. And the reason they're epic is because when it's man versus man, it's an epic battle because you don't know who's going to win. But if you ever read the battles in the Bible, they're never epic. They're always just one sentence. And they're over with. Now, the human in us, and especially the teenage boy, wants this epic battle. But it's not there in the Bible. And it's not there in the Bible because when it's God versus man, there is no epicness. It's like you versus a flea. 
The only time battles ever get epic in the battle is when Israel is not trusting in God. And then it becomes a man versus a man. But you also notice that every single time God fights a battle, he never fights it through Israel's military. He fights it through nature. He always uses nature, the, the storm, the river flooding, and even outside of the exodus. Or sometimes he just causes the men to go insane and they start killing each other. Because God fights for you. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20 is going to forbid them to actually have an army. They're allowed to have a military, as in men with swords, but they're not allowed to have anything extra. No chariots, no horses, no anything. So in modern day terms, there'd be no aircraft carriers, no planes, no tanks, no jeeps, no bazookas, no drones. Why? Because they're supposed to trust in God, where God is going to later say, I am your horse and chariots. Horses and chariots were the most technologically advanced military weapon that you could ever have in the ancient world. And God says, I am your horse and chariots. And you see that in the Psalms. And then when you get to Elijah, Elijah opens up the servant's eyes and he's able to see the horses and chariots of God in the angelic realm. And the idea is God is your horse and chariot. And so this isn't just a name for Jacob who needs to trust in God to fix his problems. This is supposed to become the basic, most fundamental identity of the entire nation of Israel, that God fights for us and everything. And it's supposed to be our identity because Paul says that we have been grafted into Israel and we are the true Israel by faith who have circumcised hearts. Now, I'm not saying God has not directly commanded us to not have any of this today because we're not a nation anymore. But he has asked you and commanded you to apply this spiritually. And that, yes, it's okay to go to doctors and lawyers and all that kind of stuff, but who are you really, truly trusting in? Who are you truly trusting in? God does not forbid you to have money or cars or mechanics or lawyers or doctors, but he does forbid you to trust in them as a sole source of your redemption. And so, because we are Israel, God fights for us. And so this is going to, this is supposed to shape everything of who they are. And this becomes their meaning. So finally he says, tell me your name. And the angel refuses to give it to him. Now, we have no idea why. There is a sense in the ancient world to know the name of something supernatural is to have control over it. But we know that that doesn't work with God. But at the same time, God may not give him the name just so that Jacob won't try to think that way because we already know he has superstitious beliefs. So maybe he's just protecting Jacob from being tempted in that area. Don't know exactly why. And he has to break away. And it says from this day on, when the Jews eat animals, they never eat that sinew from the hip bone. And it's not because there's nothing wrong with it, because they're just a highly ritualistic culture. Ritual's not bad if you don't think that the ritual is going to make things right or save you. But if ritual allows you to intentionally think about something that you normally don't intentionally think about, then it's good. As long as you understand that animal sacrifice doesn't really save you, but that as you do the animal sacrifice, it gives you the opportunity to think about how you should be right with God and repent, then ritual becomes good. Ritual becomes good. 
And so the sun rose over him, and he crossed over the pineal, but he was limping because of his hip. And that is why they do not eat that part when they eat me. Now, has he learned his lesson? That's the question. Does he get who he is? Now, in some cases, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. 66 books of the Bible and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it takes us a while to get things. So this guy is without a Bible, without the Holy Spirit, without Christ. So we got to give him some time. But at the same time, will he change? That's the question. Now, immediately, no. Because now he goes back to dividing his camp into two camps again. But notice this time. where Before, we're not told how he divided them, just that he did. Now we're told. He takes Leah, his two maidservant wives, and all their children, he puts them in the front. And he thinks to myself that I'll put Rachel and Joseph in the back so that if Esau attacks my one wife and children, they'll die, and my favorite two will be able to get away and survive. That's really jacked up and evil. Okay, that shows you the extent of his favoritism. He's literally, literally going to use half of his, more than half of his family as a shield, a human shield to protect his two favorites. He's got a long way to go in the sanctification process. He's got a long way to go in the sanctification process. He's been sending these bribes. He's divided his camp. And lo and behold, he comes to Esau. And Esau hugs him, embraces him, and says, Why are you sending me all this stuff? I have my own stuff. God has blessed me with my own inheritance over the years. And he forgives Jacob. Now, here's what's so interesting. We're never given the Esau story because this is about the chosen line from Adam to Christ. This isn't about everybody that's ever lived and everybody that God's ever worked on. It's just about the line of Christ. But God has been working on Esau. And the 21 years of Esau's life, who knows how God is, what his story has been like. Does it mean that he's become a full-blown believer? I don't know, as we look at his descendants later. But as we look at Jacob's descendants, either one can say, did they become full-blown believers? We don't know. But has God worked on his heart in such a way that it has softened Esau, and Esau has responded with a heart of forgiveness? And yes. And did that happen last night? No. We know that that's a process. Which means when God is saying, I will fight your battles for you, trust me, trust me, I will bless you, it means that God has already won the battle. Jacob doesn't even know it. He thinks he's going into this battle where he's got to trust God to fight and win this battle. And he doesn't even realize that God has already won the battle years ago. And he just needs to step out in faith and see it. Same with Gideon. God called Gideon to defeat the Midianite army all by himself. And Gideon went out and raised an army, which is completely disobedient to the command of God. At least Jacob obeys the commands. And then when he finally goes out into battle with this clever, intelligent plan, which really is intelligent, of making himself look more numerous with lots of trumpets and torches, which were only assigned to so many men out of a hundred, 
And God just defeats everybody with a storm. And he doesn't really do anything. Because all God wanted him to do was step out and let him see what he was going to do. That's what faith is. Most of the time, faith is just stepping out and trusting God to watch him do something. Lots of times he asks you to join him. And there's a lot of things that he wants us to do. But he usually doesn't call us to go out and do it until first we're able to step out in faith and watch him do it. Just like I don't hand a screwdriver to my daughter and say, change the electrical outlet. She sits down with me and I show her how to wire it and do things and then I hand it to her and let her like fumble with it. You show and then you ask them to join you. And that's exactly what God does. He asks you to just show up in faith and watch him do something amazing and then you're able to step out and join him once you see what he's doing. And so Esau forgives him. And Esau goes back down to Edom, which is south of the Dead Sea, and lives there where he's been living. And Jacob goes to the land, and he sees his dad for the very first time in all these years. But he never got to see his mother. She's dead now. And so part of his deception means that he never got to see his mother ever again. He never got to be there for her death and bury her. And so he, Edom is here. Now, where is Edom? Edom is still not a part of the blessings because Edom chose to live outside the land. And there are no blessings outside the land. And this is very important. Of all the descendants of Abraham, Abraham has Ishmael, who goes outside the land. He also has the descendants of Midian, who goes outside the land. In fact, Midian and Ishmaelites are going to merge together. They're almost going to become the same people group. Edom goes outside the land. And so what he's showing is that only this one line of Abraham is staying in the land, which this is the line that God is going to use. So in, but there's this, there's this tension here, because in one sense, God is saying that only these people are blessed, and only these people belong to me, because they're in the land. But... These people are supposed to be a blessing to all these people. And if they're truly godly, these people want to come into the land, and they're to be accepted in the land, and eventually they're to expand Israel so that all these people become a part of the land. But that never happens because of their disobedience. So remember, this isn't favoritism on God's part. This is him choosing an image to go out and make more images. <clears throat> 